In previous episodes of the Carolina Recycling Podcast, we have discussed the environmental benefits of recycling, which are conserving natural resources, reducing emissions and energy use, and avoiding disposal. But it is important that we don't overlook the economic reasons behind recycling as well. Will Sager, the Executive Director of the Southeast Recycling Development Council, also called CERDIC, joined me for a call to explain why recycling is important for business. So from an economic standpoint, why are recycled commodities, recycled materials better than raw material? Um, almost universally, recycled content in manufacturing saves energy in the production process. Um, aluminum cans, of course, are the poster child for energy savings uh, in that, but at um, all of the materials say there's a significant energy savings in glass as well. Um, I, it doesn't hit the 95% that aluminum does, but it's, it's still enough that it, it, it's a, a major consideration in their manufacturing process. And I mean, it's the same in paper. I just, you know, think of the seventh grader that wants to throw a spitball at the blackboard. <laughs> Um, he can use notebook paper or he could make a spitball out of toothpicks. It's just going to take a lot longer to chew up the toothpicks to get them to the right consistency to stick to the blackboard. Well, That's our fantastic. paper mills work the same way. We took fiber, either recovered or virgin fiber, into a big vat with water and pulverize it with an implement. It's, it's largely a chain that's in that vat beating upon those fibers until they're the right size to go through the screens to go out onto the rollers to make new paper. It's the same process. And it also saves a lot of energy if we put into that process old paper rather than virgin fibers. So it's, it, this is how we save money. Now, as, and this may be later in your questions, but as it gets into where our markets are going, this is why energy prices are very important to our recycling markets. And if you look at the history of oil prices for say the last 20 years, you'll see a very direct correlation to uh, our market prices as to whatever energy prices are doing. The price of oil goes up the price of like recycled PET or HDPE also goes up. Re so. Revenue for our programs goes for revenue for the MRF selling the materials to market uh, goes up significantly as oil prices go up. We did recently last year have kind of an anomaly that got out of that. While we did see oil prices rise last year, we saw particularly some plastic prices rise even more than would be anticipated by the rise in energy prices. Um, but we are attributing that to our, uh, the demand for recycled content uh, that's being uh, driven by many of the um, goals that our, our brands, our big companies are setting for recycled content in their packaging is putting more demand on some of our recycled materials. Right. 
So that's, as, that's having an impact, but but don't discount what energy prices matter to our markets. The the brands that are creating recycled content commitments. I think a big target date is 2030. A lot of packaging companies have said by by 2030 we're going to be I don't know exactly. I think 50% recycled content. 50 by 50 by 30 is the term. 50 by That's, 30, right? Yeah, that, so and how, that is also your federal goal. It's been established by the EPA, right? So how will that affect the landscape of recycling economics? How will that affect the landscape of demand for recycled content? Because these brands are are having these recycled content goals. It, it's, I mean, it's going to push any, any time a brand wants to use more recycled content, it's going to push our demand curve up. Uh, one of the things that we do experience is that our supply curve for many of these commonly recycled materials is very inelastic. I mean, it's a vertical curve that the generator and the, 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 point at which the materials are diverted from diversion into recovery. This is what happens in your household or your small business, but where some an individual is putting that fiber or that container into a recycling stream rather than a waste stream, um, there's not a lot of market connection right there. They're not really concerned. Their, their activities are not driven by the price of the material because they're not getting any price feedback. Their collection services are gonna cost them the same each month. So our amount of material is pretty constant and very predictable. But, you know, we can count on a lot of aluminum the week after the Super Bowl or maybe 4th of July week. I mean, this, but it's gonna be the same every year. And so small changes in demand will then lead to large changes in the price because the supply doesn't move. And, and we, we see that if um, demand goes down a little bit, prices will go. And when China in 2018 pulled out of our market or, or restricted the market, I should say, uh, you know, it had a big impact, but it's not that China bought everything we had. China is, um, was really, it's not that they're a small player, but we consume domestically 70% of everything we collect. We export 30%, only half of which went to China, and only half of that 15% was impacted by national sword. But that's enough when our supply is that inelastic, that it had caused a significant shockwave to us. Just that, I guess, seven and a half percent of yeah. you know the, the mixed paper and mixed plastic that were affected by the national sword yeah. policy. If, if and it really, even that material found homes because it quickly went to Vietnam and Indonesia and other totally. places, and domestic capacity picked it up because you know the paper mills here really liked very low uh, price of, of their supply. Right. I mean, when mixed paper was trading for minus five and minus $10 a ton, I mean, what manufacturer wouldn't be like to be paid to have feedstock going to his factory? Right. I mean, this, so we, you know, 
in 2018, we actually consumed and exported through markets more paper than we did the year before. Wow. More time. We didn't get as much money for it. (laughs) But (laughs) more material moves. So recycling didn't die through that. Now, you know, we're we're in a different point on the the pricing curve now because of a lot of that has balanced out and there's more demand in the market. Absolutely. I feel like since 2018, we've heard so many announcements of new domestic you know, mills coming online in the next two to three years. And a lot of them have opened already. So we're seeing the pricing of mixed paper and cardboard kind of responding to that. Of course, with other, other factors included in that with price of energy, and the pandemic and uh, online shopping all having yeah. an effect on that. But so, you, you know, you mentioned the national sort of policy and this kind of perception that I heard this and read this in some articles. It's like recycling is broken now that we don't have our overseas market. I've heard you respond to this in the past. And I was wondering if you if you had a response to those articles that came out saying like recycling is done, recycling is broken. How would you respond to those? Um, well, actually, I'd call them fake news <laughs> just to, to borrow a popular political term, uh, because it just really wasn't true. Uh, many of the stories, and we, we, we followed these stories closely, uh, many of the stories when I, I get to reading it and finding what the reporter was using for the story, it, it was almost inevitably coming back to they had interviewed one city or one program that's in a contract renegotiation with their MRF and the MRF is raising the price. The other part of this economic model that that we haven't gotten to, but is that our local governments are a significant part of the supply chain for our manufacturing system. And as our materials go from the consumer through their collection system that's generally operated by local government, um, then into a MRF that more than likely now is is privately operated. Um, In the early days, it was more public. Private sector is handling that. And from there, it goes on to some intermediate processor and then the manufacturing and ultimately a brand is gonna own the material and it's back to retail. And all around that circle, that's all business to business transactions, except for that where it's being collected by the local government from the consumer. And local governments don't interact, or local governments don't react to economic decisions the same way the private sector does. They're mission driven. They, they, they have a per or they're service driven. They're there to provide a service to their constituents and uh, they're not trying to make a profit. They're trying to keep their cost as low to keep their constituents happy, but that's how they do. And they don't respond quickly to price changes or other factors in the market because government tends to move a lot slower than the private sector in how they can adapt things. And there's, that's probably not a bad thing, but it is the way it is. And so we've got this, this kind of a, 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 a bump 
in our economic model there that that's, we need to pay close attention to and how can we make this work best for everyone to have them involved and get the materials we need to, to feed our manufacturing system because Zurich's done a lot of work document just how important the manufacturing and how large the manufacturing sector is in the Southeast that is dependent upon these materials. Right, so so CERDIC has done research into how, how many companies in the Southeast depend on the recyclable commodities coming from our local government. Yeah, I mean, we've identified um, 360 manufacturing facilities in the Southeast. So and I don't know exactly, not all those are different companies. Um, and I haven't counted it that way. We've got it in a spreadsheet, I could, but, you know, it's, you know, but this is, you know, there's 90,000 people working in these facilities. This is, this is a significant part of our economy. Absolutely. And that's just the manufacturing sector there. I mean, you got the hauling, the process. Uh, you know, ISRI does a lot of work to document what the recycling industry, the, the industry that's doing the collection in some of this uh, primary processing. And um, there's some pretty large numbers of employees and uh, sales and tax revenue in that part of this model as well. Uh, our office, you know, with the help of um, Sherry Arkowski, did a like a job study back in 2020 and looking at, you know, there's 16,000 private sector related jobs just in recycling in North Carolina, you know, payroll of over $700 million. That's not insignificant. Uh, and, and that economy, that industry depends on those local government programs to feed it. So can't, can't understate the importance of recycling on, on jobs enough. Taking a kind of step back to look at the past two years from your perspective in the Southeast, how did, how did the pandemic affect the market pricing and economics of recycling? Uh, a lot of our economy continued on and people were still receiving paychecks and said demand was there. Uh, they weren't going to store, so online purchases soared, and that had a very immediate impact on the demand for fiber, particularly for all the cardboard boxes that show up on your doorstep. Um, and, uh, and we're proud to say most of those cardboard boxes have uh, a stamp that they were made by one of the three Fertic sponsors that make cardboard boxes. Um, and so it's... Uh, Parts of, uh, parts of our um, recycling economy did very well during this. Um, beverage consumption shifted to at home. So there were a lot more bottles and uh, cans in our recycling system. Are there state or federal policies that from your perspective with CERDIC do you think would help boost the economic support for recycling. Is there anything that y'all have seen implemented in other states or um, either in other countries that you think if that was implemented on a wider scale here would help you know, boost demand and, and keep supply high for recycling? And if you can't talk on that, that's totally fine. Um, no, I mean, it's, there are things that work um, and, uh, and 
and there's things that just make sense. Like we should not be throwing away aluminum cans and plastic bottles. It should be against the law. Oh, and by the way, man, in North Carolina, it is. It's against the law, yeah. <laughs> and the implementation of the 2008 legislation there did have an impact. Um, we saw an increase in the capture of our materials there. We still are woefully short of compliance with that. Um, it's hard to enforce. Yeah. It's, it is a difficult one to enforce. Yeah. And the law is, was specifically written in such a way that makes it difficult to enforce. Uh, in addition to what any pragmatic observations may be out there. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think we need to move towards a, a, uni, a universal um, collection opportunities or a parallel that we, what we call equal access, uh, mm -hmm. that if, if there is a waste can that where I can get rid of whatever I need to get rid of, we should have recycling access as easy and right beside that. I think it is, as we get closer to equal access and universal participation, we won't erase the need to have ongoing education and encouragement out there, but I think that the amount that we have to do will diminish as we get closer. Is, is there any other you know, topic I missed about the importance of recycling to the economy that, that you think we should, we should cover or we got it? Well, I mean, recycling feeds our manufacturing infrastructure. Uh, you know, when we ship loads to foreign uh, facilities, we, we are having an impact on our national trade balance um, or international trade balance, I should say. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's revenue coming back to us. The impacts that we make here will be felt downstream in much of, you know, beyond healthcare, but just a lot of our economy, in that this is a better use of our materials um, than what we could be doing. And I think that part of the problem in economics with recycling to get it work well is we have some very inexpensive disposal here. And um, you know, I've worked in this business from when we had open dumps and seen the development of the sanitary landfill and then the third generation for the subtitle D landfill now. And clearly each of those steps has been a significant improvement on our waste disposal. But yeah, the subtitle D landfill in the end is largely going to be a big plastic bag holding a very large amount of trash with a lot of anaerobic digestion going on inside of it and a lot of moisture that sooner or later it's going to fail. It might be a hundred years from now. It might be beyond that, but sooner or later it's going to fail. Right. And the efforts we can do to uh, uh, reduce that exposure 
will not reap immediate economic benefits, but they will have a huge impact down the road for generations yet to come. It's, it's tough to account for future economic value of environmental protection now, but that certainly exists. Um, hey, Will, thank you so much for, for joining and, and talking with me this morning. I you know appreciate you making the time. Always good to chat with you. Always good, Matt. And uh, we'll go forth and prosper. Let's make this work. Absolutely. I want to thank Will Sager again for joining the call and talking about some recycling economics with me. Uh, also, a special thank you to the CRA's Diamond Sponsors, Pratt Recycling, and Sunoco Recycling. My name is Matt James. I'm a board member for the CRA, and I just want to say appreciate you for listening, and thanks for Tom Harf for the theme music. Thank you.